It's a great privilege for me to be here. Uh, this is really my spiritual alma mater. As I mentioned last week, um, I will never ever be able to repay Pastor Miller for the investment that he made in my life, uh, the instruction that I received from him, the example that he was to me. And uh, as I said, when I left here, the only way that I would ever be able to say thank you to him uh, is to take what he taught me and spread it around the world. And we've had the opportunity of helping to start Bible schools and Bible institutes in several places around the world. And so his ministry has uh, gone out uh, in, in many, many places that uh, you would probably be surprised to hear. We're going to continue on the theme that I started on last week, which is the profile of a faithful shepherd. And last week we looked at the profile of a faithful shepherd in his personal ministry. Uh, one aspect of the ministry, by the way, that people often don't think about. And many times uh, it's invisible to the church. Uh, the times of spending hours in council, in encouragement and exhortation uh, with individuals. And of course, Pastor Miller spent a lot of time on me. He had, he had a lot of work cut out for him when I walked through those doors. Uh, very confused, uh, doctrinally, uh, very oppressed from the issues of legalism um, and frustrated that there was just no way to live this Christian way of life. And I'll never forget the first time that he sat down with me uh, in what was his office in the other old building. And he sat down with me uh, one evening and uh, began to expound to me the principles of the grace of God. And this was something that in my time up to then as a believer, no one had really explained. And understanding the grace of God and beginning to understand the full impact of the cross of Christ was revolutionary for me. We're going to move on today and we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians because we want to look at the profile of a faithful shepherd in regard to his public ministry. And if you got a copy of the notes, I'll be starting about the middle of uh, page two there with a little bit of review. Uh, you can follow along with me. I don't always follow my notes. Uh, those are there for you to basically do a little bit of uh, extra study along the way. But before we do that, I would ask you to join me at the throne of grace. And let's once again ask God's blessing. When we open the word of God, we are standing on holy ground. We just took time to examine and confess any known sins. Uh, this is a time that is, I think, very important. We remove the sandals from our feet. We prepare our hearts and our souls to stand before the burning bush of God's word and allow him to speak directly to us. So let's just once again ask him to accomplish what he has planned today, and then we'll get into our study. Our gracious Heavenly Father, how thankful we are for the privilege of being members of the royal family of God, for the honor of being commissioned to reach out into our world in uh, light of our various gifts and in light of our varying ministries, and Father, as we talk today about the profile of a faithful shepherd, it should weigh on each one of us and strike deep into our souls 
that whatever you require of a shepherd, you require so that he might lead the sheep. And what that means is that what you require of a shepherd, you require also of each of us. So the things that we're about to study are not only for the purpose of identifying and clarifying what it means to be called as a shepherd and to serve as a shepherd, but they also weigh on each one of us as the requirements for living a faithful, a powerful, and an effective spiritual life. So to this end, we commit ourselves as we open the pages of your word, grant that God the Holy Spirit will provide illumination and also enablement to put the things we learn into practice. And we will thank you for the end result as we have an impact on our six square feet of ground in this earth. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Let me just very quickly review what I touched on last week. Um, it's said that when a speaker stands up, whether it's a pastor to a church, whether it's a speaker in a public setting, people consciously or unconsciously are asking questions in their mind. The first question they're going to ask is, can I really trust you? The second question is, do you care about me? Does my life matter to you or are you only here to promote yourself? The third question is, do you know what you're talking about? And actually these three questions go back into ancient times. Actually it was Aristotle who came up with the idea of these three areas, which he called the ethos, the pathos, and the logos of the leader. The ethos has to do with character. We get our word ethics from it. The pathos has to do with compassion. And of course, the logos has to do with the message. And so it's only right that any of us who sit at the feet of someone else's teaching would have a right to ask these three questions. Now, the reason that Aristotle came up with these is because he was a student of philosophy. He was a student of Plato, Plato a student of Socrates. And so Aristotle was basically evaluating the teachers of his day the great philosophers, the people who consider themselves to be wise men. And as he evaluated them, he came to the conclusion that each of them was lacking in one or more areas of those three things. Just for example, in Socrates, he said he was lacking in ethos. Now, you wouldn't really expect Socrates to be lacking in character. He was, after all, a proven warrior. Uh, Victor Davis Hanson has written a very interesting book on battle called Ripples of Battle. Uh, and in that book, he records how Socrates uh, distinguished himself at the Battle of Delium. Even though the Athenians lost, he was able to lead a retreat while multitudes were being slaughtered by the uh, horseback forces of the enemy. Um, Socrates was able to hold the line and do an orderly withdrawal. He obviously had some character, but what he meant when he said that Socrates lacked character was that he tended to annoy people. He tended to aggravate people. In fact, Socrates called himself the gadfly of Athens because he was always asking questions. And if you know anything about philosophy or teaching, you know the Socratic method is a method whereby you ask rhetorical questions to illustrate to your listeners that they don't know the answer, which opens their mind up to the fact that you can now deposit within them the answer that they need to know. If you want to look at the first two or three verses in Acts 17, you'll actually find that those three things 
were a part of the ministry of the Apostle Paul. So Socrates was lacking in ethos. Plato, he said, was lacking in pathos. Uh, you know, it's one thing to be right, and it's one thing to tell people the right thing, but you can tell them the right thing, and if you have no care or compassion for them, it kind of comes across as arrogant or overbearing. And apparently that was the problem that Aristotle found with Plato. And then, of course, there were those that called themselves the sophists, the wise men, the sages of their age. And he said that they were totally lacking in logos. The content uh, was all about speculation. It was all about theory. It was all about mystery ideas. And so they had a lot of high sounding uh, theories that they espoused and argued they really weren't helping the people. So these three things are very important. And if you remember, if you were with us last week, we looked at three passages that highlight each one of these. We looked at 1 Peter chapter 5. And in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, Peter is speaking to the under shepherds, those who were pastors and shepherds of the flock. And in that passage, he talks to them about the importance of character. It might be worth going back to look at that passage. We then went to Matthew chapter 9 at the end of the chapter in verses uh, 35 to the end of the chapter. In fact, I just noticed on your notes I have Matthew 9, 35 to 34, should be 38. We see Jesus' compassion for individuals. He looked out on the multitude and it said that he had compassion. He was literally moved with compassion for them. Jesus never looked at a multitude as a crowd of people. Jesus always looked at a multitude as individuals. By the way, it's one of the things that I always stress in the Bible schools, institutes, and seminaries that I teach at. I tell the young men, if you're going to teach, when you teach, make eye contact with people. It's very important that each person there has the sense that you are talking directly to them. That this is not just a message being thrown out to a crowd. This is a message being spoken to individuals and those individuals come through those doors with burdens, with problems and cares and concerns, and they need to realize that you are speaking directly to them. And uh, Randy Marshall, who is a great communicator, in fact, he teaches communication for a living, uh, has indicated that there are something like 26 varying uh, aspects of communication and only about five of them have to do with speech. Your posture, uh, the way you carry yourself, uh, whether you give a sense that you know what you're talking about, that you really have a grasp of the information or not, but one of them, very importantly, is eye contact. Uh, I not only teach this to the young men going into the ministry, I teach it to people in the uh, crowd and, and in the local church because there is a ministry of listening. I taught a whole class uh, on the ministry of listening. The ministry of listening is when you minister to me by your eye contact saying I'm with you and sometimes even a nod of approval, uh, sometimes uh, just an expression on your face says, yeah, I'm getting it. And that is really a tremendous ministry. So Matthew 9 was all about compassion and then Psalm 23. You know, we tend to read Psalm 23 and as I pointed out last week, it is, of course, the most famous of all the Psalms, and the reason is the childlike simplicity of it, much like John 3.16 in the New Testament. 
But when we really dig into Psalm 23, we find out that it's more than just a children's story. We find out that there's a lot there that is goes very, very deep in the spiritual life. And when we take the words of David, which are spoken in terms of a shepherd and then later of a king as he's anointed, and we start expounding those in light of New Testament teaching and New Testament doctrine, we find out a very interesting thing. And that was that David was able to encapsulate in Psalm 23, the essence of the teaching ministry. And I'm not going to go through all those points. They're in the middle of point three for you. And you can go back and look at those at a later time. What I want to do this morning is I want to move into 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Because in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, we have the Apostle Paul dealing with the issue of the public ministry. This is something that every one of us, uh, whether we're serving in teaching a Sunday school class, uh, whether we're teaching as a pastor of a local church, teaching a home Bible study, a vacation Bible school, whatever it may be, or even just in our communication with friends, relatives, and neighbors as we seek to be a good ambassador of Christ and communicate the gospel to them. It's very, very important that we keep all of the elements that we're going to see this morning in view. So 1 Thessalonians, by the way, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, we just had a conference on 1 and 2 Thessalonians uh, with the theme, what day are you looking for? Paul uses the phrase so much the more as you see the day approaching. What is the day that he's talking about? Probably for the people that were the recipients of the letter, he was talking about 70 AD and the upheaval that it was going to send in shockwaves around the world. But it's very important for you and I as we're looking for the return of the Lord. By the way, I pray for it all the time. Next Sunday is Pentecost. And uh, I always hope for a Pentecostal rapture of the church. Whether that's going to happen or not, I don't know. But I certainly pray for it. And especially all the more as we see our world uh, basically just going around the uh, sinkhole of chaos, confusion, uh, economic collapse. And by the way, all of this is engineered. I, don't, I know people don't like to hear that. Uh, none of this is by accident. Uh, it's all the engineered destruction of the United States of America because we cannot have a one world government with one superpower. So that superpower has got to re be reduced and uh, we're seeing that uh, that may uh, shake you up a little bit, but I believe that it will prove true. But anyway, in 1 Thessalonians, we have a couple of linguistic tools that we find mentioned there at the bottom of your page three, which we call bookends. Uh, it's very important as you study your New Testament writings to look for bookends. Many of the New Testament books have them, uh, in Romans, it is uh, the idea of obedience to the faith. And you'll find it in Romans chapter 1 and verse 5. And you'll find it again in Romans, I believe, chapter 16 and verse 25. It's a bookend that says this is what the book's about. The book is about obedience to the faith. And as Paul works his way through the book of Romans, he starts with the issue of obedience to the faith 
responding to the gospel. And then he moves from justification to the idea of obedience to the faith in regards to sanctification. That's chapter 6 through 8. And then he goes into obedience to the faith as it relates to Israel. That's chapters 9 through 11. And then, of course, obedience to the faith in regard to living the Christian life, Romans 12 to 15. So once we get these bookends in our mind, it can kind of help guide us through the book to keep everything in line with the thrust of what the author is trying to tell us. And in 1 Thessalonians 1, 3 and 5, 8, very interesting that we find an emphasis on faith, hope, and love. And I won't labor the point, but faith, hope, and love relate to ethos, pathos, and logos. They are, of course, the chief Christian virtues. And then a uh, second set of bookends in 1 Thessalonians 1.10 and 5.9 has to do with escaping wrath. Now, we know from Romans chapter 1 that wrath has a specific meaning as it's used by the Apostle Paul. Most people take the idea of wrath referring to hell. That's not what Paul's talking about. If you read Romans 1, starting in verse 18, you will find that the idea of wrath is the consequences of sinful behavior that are judicially carried out on the people. You'll remember in Romans 1, 24, 26, and 28, we keep reading that phrase, therefore God gave them over. And because they continued, therefore God gave them over. And because they continued, therefore God gave them over. And he begins the whole section in Romans 1.18 by saying, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. In Paul's mind, the idea of wrath is not relating so much to eternal judgment as judgment in time. And so bad decisions, as we try to tell young people all the time, have bad consequences, make good decisions, and they'll have good consequences. And specifically as Christians, the more we live in the power of the Spirit and obedience to the Word of God, the more we are going to be delivered from the judicial consequences of a sinful life. Paul picks that idea up in Romans 5, 9, and 10. So 1st and 2nd Thessalonians are really interesting books. That's an introduction. Let's look at the character of the shepherd. We're going to look at the ethos, the character of the shepherd in 1st Thessalonians 2, 1 through 6. And by the way, this is not by any means a deep study that requires a whole lot of mental power. What I want to do is simply read to you the passage and then highlight what the passage says uh, so that we can move on. We have a whole chapter to cover. So the first six verses, Paul says, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, and you can go back and read Acts 16 and 17 and see the persecution they went through, he says, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor cloak for covetousness, God is witness, 
nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. What are the highlights of what Paul's saying in this passage, using himself and his missionary team as an example? The first thing is, in verse 1, he reminds them that his coming was not in vain. Very important to point this out. There is power in the ministry, but the power in the ministry is in the word. I just found a quote this morning. Uh, I wrote it down. It's by a guy that I disagree with on some theological issues. However, this statement is correct. The greatest weakness in the church today is that no one believes that God invests his power in the Bible. I want you to think about that. I'm going to read it again. The greatest weakness in the church today is that no one believes God invests his power in the Bible. Everyone is looking for power in programs, methods, techniques, everywhere but where God placed it, his word. He alone can change lives for eternity, and the power to do that is found in the scriptures. That's from R.C. Sproul, uh, though he's a Calvinist, unfortunately. Well, he's no longer a Calvinist. He's with the Lord now. So he's corrected his thinking on that matter, but my apologies if you're a Calvinist. <laughs> Paul says it was not in vain. Why? Because when he came to them, he spoke the word. The emphasis of his ministry, the focus of his ministry was the word of God. Now, it's not going to do any good to teach the word of God and live contrary to the word of God. So there are other things he highlights. He talks about the fact in verse 2 that they had suffered a great deal of persecution and that in spite of the persecution, they were bold to speak the truth. Here's another thing that comes along with genuine ministry, opposition. Any ministry that is not facing opposition is there's something wrong because the truth hurts the enemy and the enemy hates the truth. And therefore, the stronger the ministry, the stronger the focus on the word of God, there will be opposition, there will be attack, uh, there will be all kinds of snares and traps that are laid. It's simply a part of life. And yet here's the key. Can you face all of that and still stand and proclaim the truth without fear? Nat and I could spend hours telling you marvelous examples of people from all over the world who suffered daily, people in Pakistan, people in India, people in Africa, people across Asia, just common people. I'm not talking even about just the pastors. I'm talking about people in the pew, people that are students. Of course, the pew there may be a dirt floor, you understand. But those people are willing every day of their life to make the truth of the gospel of Christ an issue and they suffer. Sometimes they can't get jobs. Sometimes the only jobs they can get to feed their family are the worst kinds. Uh, we have times beyond number seeing Christian women who hired on as sewage cleaners because that's the only way that they could feed their children. And what that means is when the big sewers in the cities get plugged up, you step down into it up to your neck and start scooping it out and, and dumping it into uh, the uh, street or the alley or whatever. 
and they do it and they're treated with scorn, they're treated with contempt every day of their life, and yet they are joyful people and they continue to make the gospel of Christ the issue of their life. The third thing that I'll notice is that he tells them his ministry was free from error, false motives, or deception. You might remember Peter warned pastors about that in 1 Peter chapter 5. There's a danger in being in the ministry. The place that I'm standing right now is a dangerous place. The reason it's a dangerous place is because all you are looking at me. And you know, when you have people looking at you, there is always that temptation to get to like that. You like the attention. You like the praise. The more that you allow that to motivate you, you start ministering and it's a very gradual transition and yet I've seen it happen over and over and over again where the important thing is the reputation, the important thing is the praise that comes, the important thing is pleasing people and pretty soon you're completely off track because you're not willing to stand up and tell people things they don't wanna hear but they need to hear. A pastor has to be able to do that. He has to speak harsh truths, difficult truths, not in a nasty manner, always speaking the truth in love, but telling people the truth. And the Apostle Paul did not allow false motives to enter into his life and ministry at any time. And by the way, along with that, of course, comes the issue of money. Uh, I have nothing to do with your uh, search committee, but I would tell you this, if the first question a pastor asks you is how much does it pay, boot them out the door. The ministry is not a job. The ministry is a calling by God. And if God has called someone here and you recognize that this is the person that God has called, neither you nor they are going to have to worry about the supply of God and his provision. He'll take care of that. That's his job. So I throw that out for what it's worth. Pastors don't like to hear me say that. When I took my first church in Conway, Arkansas, they called me. I went. I taught a few times. And then they sat down with me and formally gave me a call to the ministry. And I believed, Nan and I had prayed, believed that God was uh, working in this direction. And so finally the meeting was about to break up and they said, well, we haven't talked about pay. I said, I'm not looking for a job. I'm coming here because I believe that God is calling me to this place. By the way, it wasn't a place I wanted to go. To leave Arizona for Arkansas, nah. But I wasn't looking for a job. I said, I know how to work. If I came here and you guys offered me nothing, I'll go out. I can build fence. I can haul hay. I can work cattle. I can do whatever I have to do. And I did a lot of that in the early years. But I was convinced that God was taking us to that place. And I was convinced if that's where he calls. What was it Hudson Taylor said? God never calls, but what he also supplies. And if he's called there, the supply will be there. A fourth point is that Paul's motive here is declared not to please men, but to please God. You know, one day, those of us who stand in front of you are going to stand in front of the Lord. And we may impress you, but we may not impress him at all. The important thing for us always to keep in mind is I have a destiny. I have a, a point where I'm going to stand in front of the Lord and I'm going to give an account for what I've done. And I have to be honest with you, as one who has pastored for many, many years and served on the mission field, many, many places, it causes me to tremble. It truly causes me to tremble. 
because I know the many, many times that I have failed to do and failed to be everything that I should have been. Our goal is to please God. And then finally, he makes it clear that there was no desire for personal gain, whether financial or from the praise of men. Uh, even though as an apostle, he had a right to demand support, he did not do so. He served them freely. He worked with his own hands to provide for his needs and the needs of his mission team. And what do all those things add up to? That's character. You know, they say character is who you are in the dark. Character is what you are when no one's looking. What we see here in these few verses, just some brief snapshots, really, of the ministry of the Apostle Paul and his team. And I often think, you know, Timothy, Titus, Barnabas, uh, Silas, Mark, others traveled with the Apostle Paul. It was probably not very easy. There's probably a reason why in Acts chapter 13, Mark left and went back to Jerusalem because traveling with the Apostle Paul would have been tough and it would have demanded a lot. But what it would have developed in those who traveled with him as they observed him and as they imitated him and learned from him was character. And character is something money can't buy. So we see the ethos side of things to such an extent that Paul could even say, I call on you Thessalonians as witnesses and also God himself. I have two witnesses in the mouth of two or three witnesses. Every truth will be established. You Thessalonians know that what I'm saying is true. God knows what I'm saying is true. And that is character. Well, from character, we move on to compassion. And compassion we find in verse 7 through 12. And then I'm going to drop down to verse 17. Three very interesting uh, analogies that are used here. Follow with me in verse 7. He says, But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our very lives. In other words, we were willing to die to minister to you because you had become dear to us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil for laboring night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, we preach to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses and God also how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And then if you'll just drop down to verse 17. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. I don't know if you picked up on the three figures, and I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on them, although it would be worth a lot of study. Uh, and some of you in your own private study might want to develop these themes. Notice in verse 7, the nursing mother. And when it talks about a nursing mother here, it uses a word that's only used in this place in the New Testament. Uh, and it could refer to a nursing mother or it could refer to uh, an, what we would call a nursemaid. Uh, it was very common in the ancient world to take a trusted slave woman. And by the way, it's common in other parts of the world today uh, where they will essentially care for the children and see to their upbringing, see to their needs, uh, take care of them up to a certain age 
where an other slave would then take over and become their mentor, preparing them for life. So the idea is of a nursing mother. And the nursing mother is said to cherish her own children. The word cherish is a word that's only used twice in the New Testament, here and in Ephesians 5.29. Interestingly there, Paul's talking about cherishing our own flesh. We care for our own flesh. Uh, we, when we hurt, we feel it. Uh, we protect our flesh. We feed our flesh. We clothe our flesh. In other words, we provide care. And of course, his application in that passage is that this should be the attitude of the husband toward the wife, that, that attitude of cherishing and caring. Uh, it's actually, this word is used in the Septuagint Greek version of the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 22.6 for a bird sitting her nest. She is warming her eggs. She is cherishing those eggs. That's the idea that we have. And so the nursing mother, by the way, William Faulkner, one of my favorite authors, uh, wrote a book called Go Down Moses. It's actually a collection of several short stories that he's done. But in the introduction to that book, he pays tribute to his black nanny who raised him and said that to over the age of 100, she was known and cherished and loved by his family because of the care that she had given to him. Uh, so uh, the, the nanny, uh, as it were, would often uh, literally become a member of the family uh, and be loved and treasured. Uh, as a very special person in that family. And then if you just move on up and uh, verses eight and nine and 10, uh, continue to kind of develop the idea of character with the labor, uh, with the affliction, the suffering, and so on and so forth. But you'll notice in verse 11, after the nursing mother, we have the figure of the father. Now ponder for just a moment, what is the difference in the love of a mother and a father. They're really very different. The way a mother loves her children, the way a father loves his children is not the same. Both love, both strong, but certainly not the same. And uh, I know I can speak for Nan because we have kids and grandkids that she hasn't seen in two and a half years because of the whole uh, COVID debacle. And uh, she is, if she could fly, she'd be on her way there, you know, flapping her wings to Australia to be able to go and visit those kids. Do I want to see them again? Absolutely. But I raised them. I know they're okay. I kind of leave their life to them. Sure, I'd love, love to see the grandkids, but you know, it's different with me and Nan. When we go over there, the grandkids come up and they say hi, and I tussle around with them a little and, and joke with them a little. Nan is fixed on them 24 hours a day. So I have a little fun with them and send them on their way and then she takes care of them. And it's just different. That love is not the same. The love of the father is a love that wants to prepare and equip the child to face life. And so Paul speaks here, not only did we have the tender care of a nursing mother, but we also had that foresight and that desire to prepare and equip you that a father 
would have. And he said, you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you. So there's exhortation. This is what you need to do. There's comfort. I know that you're failing, but don't give up. And there's charge. Keep aiming at the goal. And all of this is the function of a father. But along with instruction comes one other thing. Instruction never has impact without example. Example is far more important than we have any idea. And Paul deals quite a bit in the first Thessalonian epistle with the fact that these Thessalonians became imitators of him. Go back to chapter one about verse seven and you'll see it. It's going to come up again uh, in this section. But the idea is they not only heard the message, they not only received the exhortation and instruction, they watched it playing out in the life of the apostle Paul. And you know, this is something that I think we overlook. Uh, I think it's something that as pastors uh, is very easy for us to pass by. People can hear the truth. They can understand the doctrine. They can be given examples and illustrations of how to apply it, but they have to see it. And why is that? Well, find a father who has a small son somewhere in the area of five, six, seven years old, and spend a little time with them, and you'll notice an interesting thing. The dad will stand, and the kid watches, and he stands that way. And the dad will have expressions on his face, and the child studies the father. He wants to make that expression. The father has a way of doing things. The son studies the father. He wants to, to do it the way dad does it. Girls do the same with their mother. Can you imagine children growing up now when you don't know a father who wants to be a mother and a mother who wants to be a father? What total chaos and confusion in the souls of people. So this is part of the problem of the time in which we live. But the pathos that Paul had as a father was a pathos with a goal. Notice verse 12, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom. The word walk worthy is a word, uh, the Greek word is oxios. It refers to balancing the scales. The idea is that the scales are balanced and the balance is between our position in Christ and our practice in Christ. Do we really believe? You know, the old English word believe meant to live by. Do we really believe? It's one thing to believe intellectually, academically. It's another thing to believe to the point where we recognize the necessity of living out that which we believe. And Paul's goal, exhorting them as a father, is there is a right way to live. And that way is to walk worthy of the Father in heaven who called you to walk worthy of the Savior who died for you. And folks, I'll be the first one to tell you I've been working at it for 50 some years. It is a lifelong process. And even at the end, you're not going to attain the perfect goal. But you know what? Uh, in athletics, as in warfare, as in many other areas of life, the fact that you never stop aiming at the goal says a lot. The fact that you keep on keeping on, pressing on, driving on with your eyes fixed on that gold ring of whatever it is you're trying to attain. And then finally, in verse 17, you probably didn't pick this up, but when he says, haven't been taken from you, 
It's a compound verb, but the verb, listen closely and you'll catch it, orphanizo. Sound familiar? Orphanizo. Apo orphanizo. Apo means to be taken away from. Orphanizo is we've been orphaned. And this is a word that was used of a child who had lost their parents or by some means had been forcibly taken away from their parents. And so here you have the nursing mother, you have the exhorting father, and you have the loneliness of a child. And Paul says, because we were forced to leave you, again, I recommend going back to Acts 17, because we were forced to leave you through persecution, we feel like a child that has been separated from its family. And we are lonely and we are longing to see you again. All of these, of course, again, add up to pathos. The tender love of a mother, the exhortation and leadership of the father, the loneliness of the child separated from its family. As I said earlier, in fact, I have a little note here. These are worthy of much further study because you could develop uh, the distinctives in each one of those areas uh, to a much greater degree. All right, so we've seen the ethos of Paul. We've seen the pathos of Paul. Now we're going to look at the logos of Paul. Verse 13. For this reason, we thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of man, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you. Earlier, he had said that his ministry to them was not in vain. That was not only because of the part he played, that was because of the part they played. And you see, this is a dance, if you will, that's always going on between the communicator and the listener. And that is, well, what happens? Uh, some of you may even remember back in the old days, the Lawrence Welk hour. Remember Lawrence Welk? You remember how Lawrence Welk, he would always come on. My mom and dad always watched him and us kids would always leave because who wants to listen to this music? But anyway, Lawrence Welk would often step down from his job of leading the band and he would step down and just pick a lady from the audience and he would begin to dance with her. And of course, it was a great honor uh, if you were picked. And one time he picked a lady, and I didn't see this particular uh, session, but I uh, have heard of it and read of it since then. And he begins dancing with this lady, and then he holds up his hand. The whole band stops. Imagine this on national TV. Whole band stops, and he says, Madam, when you dance with me, I lead, you follow. And then he gave the word, and the band strikes up, and everything changed. Now, I'm sure she was very embarrassed by that. But you see what happened? She got caught up in the fact, hey, I'm on national TV and I'm dancing with Lawrence Welk and I'm going to put a lot of myself into it to show what I can do. And of course, ended up being humbled and maybe humiliated a little bit. The point is that the shepherd is leading and you are following. And there is, if you will, a spiritual dance a doctrinal dance taking place. 
Paul came into the area of Thessalonica. He began presenting the word. He exemplified the word in his life. The people received the word of God, not as it came from Paul, but he points out here, as it was in truth, the word of God. Notice what he said in light of the quote that I just read, the word of God, which effectively works in you. Many of the Problems of a pastor can be solved, believe it or not, by teaching the word. I learned when I took my first church, when there were problems in the church, instead of rushing in to be the hero and change whatever was going on and bring whatever I thought was correction, I learned to do this. First, I would start praying about it. I would pray about the problem, and then I taught on the problem. And it was not like... Someone in this group is doing this. You know, that's really unfair. Simply teaching from passages in the Word of God that deal with that problem, and after prayer and after teaching on it, then if the problem continued, then I could address it. But I found an amazing thing. Very seldom did I ever have to deal with a problem. The problem resolved itself through prayer and the teaching of the word of God. As Paul spoke the word of God to these Thessalonian believers and they're drinking it in and receiving it as coming from God, something dynamic, something supernatural began to happen. Their lives were transformed and they were transformed by the word of God coming in and the spirit of God indwelling them and I always say the power of God is like epoxy. It has two parts. You have to put the two parts together. And one part is the word of God, which is outside. The other is the spirit of God, which is inside. And when you know that you are filled with the spirit, the decks are cleared in your soul. There are no problems uh, or obstacles to spirituality. The spirit of God is leading and guiding you. And you walk in as you have this morning and sit down and God's word starts going forth. There's a miracle that takes place that none of us can make happen. But we all participate. We all have a part to play. And so Paul commends them for receiving the word of God. And you'll notice in verse 14, and you, brethren, became imitators. Uh, in chapter 1 and verse 8, uh, as I mentioned, we see this again and he's kind of uh, rehashing and uh, re-emphasizing the importance of it. But you, brethren, became imitators of the church of God, which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us, and they do not please God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. And here's that phrase, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. Now, once again, I believe that what Paul is referring to here, as I said earlier, go back and review Romans 1, 18 to 32, and you'll see that wrath is a present day manifestation of the righteousness of God on those who are resisting and those who are suppressing the truth, whether they're unbelievers or believers. 
any lifestyle that is contrary to God's word, opposed to the truth of scripture, resisting and even suppressing that truth is going to result in consequences. And those consequences are judicial. And by that, I mean, there is a judgment involved, but it's judicial, not in the sense of wrath being you know, we used to have this picture of God sitting up there with a war club or a sword just waiting to strike us down. As a young believer, that was often the impression that was given to me. You know the old story. Uh, you'd walk into, well, I usually ended up in a Baptist church, and the preacher was up there and he'd say, Now, if you're a Christian and you're thinking this, saying this, doing this, going here, Involved in whatever activity, God is going to get you, right? And it would be a big thing. Like I remember the message about God burning your barley field. God's going to burn your barley field. Comes from an Old Testament illustration. And it was what we used to call hellfire and brimstone messages, you know? Um, that is not the idea of wrath that the Bible presents. This is not a passionate anger there are two words for anger or wrath in the Greek. This word refers to a stable, settled condition of opposition against that which is contrary to the character of God. It's not emotional. It's not God getting all, you know, his hair gets all frizzled and his eyes start rolling around. He says, I'm going to get that person. No, it is God has woven within the creation Laws that are just as real as the law of gravity. You could call it a judicial judgment in the law of gravity if a guy decides to jump off a 33-story building, he is going to face the consequences of his decision. In the same way, in the spiritual realm, there are laws that cannot be broken. And when we choose to live in a way that is resistant to the truth, disobedient to the truth, or attempting to suppress the truth, which really we all do the minute we disobey, we're trying to suppress that truth in our own conscience and in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And, you know, we're trying to push it down, push it down, push it down, cover it up, ignore it. And there will ultimately and inevitably be consequences and again, I refer you to Romans chapter 5, verses 9, 10, and 11, because here he's talking to Christians, and he's telling us as Christians, if we live spiritual lives, we will not have to face the consequences of the wrath of God. Again, wrath simply being the inevitable consequence of bad decisions. He goes on then to say, we covered verse 17. Therefore, verse 18, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. Let me just say as we kind of wrap this up, we have to remember that we're engaged in a spiritual war. We're engaged in the greatest conflict that the world has ever known. We're engaged in a war that began in the Garden of Eden and is not going to end until the end of the kingdom age of Jesus Christ. And I do believe as I look at the world, we are near. The stage of the world has been set for the tribulation period. There is no doubt in my mind that the coming of Jesus Christ is near. I've never been more sure of it than I have now as I look at, 
as I said, the stage of the world being set, all that remains is for the curtain to go up and for the main actor to come on the scene, and that is Antichrist, and that time is coming very, very near. By the way, when the curtain goes up, we go up with it. The rapture of the church. Uh, if you're interested, you might want to go online. Uh, I think I gave something like 10 reasons why the rapture of the church must precede the tribulation period. They're very, very clear. Uh, they're stated uh, within various scriptures, and you can download the notes and you can get all of that. But my point is this, we are engaged in a spiritual war and we're gonna, we're gonna be here till it's over. Either our name gets called and we go home or the rapture of the church comes. We're in it for the duration. We may as well fight well. Let's play the part we've been given to play. And so he says, I wanted to come to you, but Satan hindered us. And then verse 19, what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and our joy. And this is the thing I want to leave each one of us with. In this battle, we will suffer. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And not just persecution, but just suffering as being a part of a broken world uh, and daily life uh, on this planet. But we have a prospect that those without Christ do not have. That is eternal joy, eternal peace, and specifically in light of what Paul's saying, eternal reward. Every one of us should be striving for that crown. You know what God requires of each and every one of us? The same thing he requires of a faithful shepherd. That is conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. Let the Spirit of God lead you to the Word of God. Let the Spirit of God empower and enable you to make the Word of God come alive in your life. Do not Despair when you fail. Do not give up when you fall. Just keep rising back up, fixing your eyes on the goal. Walking worthy is the objective. Balance that position in Christ, seated with him in the heavenly places, with practice in life, walking on this earth. Live as a member of the royal family of God, and you will claim that crown, and it will be to your joy and to the honor of Jesus Christ throughout all eternity. And with that, I'm going to begin to close with a word of prayer. I think a couple in the audience are then going to chime in, and then I will wrap it up. So if you would, let's approach the throne of grace, and let's pray together. Father, how I thank you for each one who's come this morning, for those who may be watching online, how I pray that God the Holy Spirit has accomplished the goal for which you have brought us together this morning, let your word empower and enable us to live Christ-like lives. This is our desire. Receive your word. We just ask that you will dismiss us in your grace, that you will surround us with your protection, that you will help us be faithful as we go out into a world that is increasingly chaotic and uh, confusing. Help us keep our eyes fixed on the light and the truth of your word, we pray in Jesus' precious name.